Hey there! Welcome back to the Corner of Story and Game. This week, I get the honor of sitting down with Dave Kornfeld, a very talented writer who spent seven years on staff at The Onion. He has consulted on a haunted house experience in LA, wrote a parody software manual for Screensavers VR, and has contributed to numerous games. Amongst them, Marvel Snap and Lord of the Rings Return to Moria. Dave, thanks for joining me today. Yeah, really glad to be here. So, uh, before we dig too deep into her, just kind of to kick things off, uh, what's, what's your riches story? How did you get into games and entertainment in general and writing? Hmm, that's a good question. Uh, so games as a, as a player or games as a job? Games as a passion, a hobby, uh, <laughs> something to do? Yeah. Okay. I'll, I'll do the, the whole, the whole thing. Um, yeah, probably similar to a lot of people, uh, got a game system when I was very young. I mean, I was even not to date myself, but I was, I was playing the, the like handheld LCD, like tiger, I think was the brand maybe, uh, just individual games and was obsessed with those and then got a Nintendo and a Genesis and, and PC and, um, you know, I was a gamer. That was I was super into it um, throughout my whole childhood. Um, memorable moment when I was a teenager. Um, the the monitor that I had faced back towards the door, so my dad would kind of materialize and just sort of stand there angrily, like quietly, while I was just happily gaming away um, instead of doing my homework. So I um, ended up installing a rearview mirror on my monitor just so I could be more aware of, of when he would just show up. But, um, yeah, kind of got away from gaming a little bit in college, uh, was focused more on just going to college and having that experience. And as, as my comedy career started taking shape, uh, that was, that was really the, the priority. And, um, I got away from, from game. So it wasn't until really later, later on, um, after college that I started playing again and always, I mean, even when I wasn't, you know, really, really into it, was always playing mobile games, you know, as the, as the iPhone came out, um, was gaming a ton on that. And, uh, yeah. And then I, uh, worked at the onion for, for a decade. That was my first job at a college. Um, well, backing up a little bit, I had, um, internships at, um, Comedy Central, uh, The Daily Show with Jon Stewart, and was the editor of my college humor magazine. So, um, yeah, after after The Onion uh, did a, kind of an odd sort of year-long comedy startup immersive experience thing. And then, yeah, when that fizzled out, I, I was really back at square one, didn't really know this this would have been around 2019. I was really taking stock of the whole, like, what do I want to do in life? You know, do I even want to be a writer anymore? Like really everything was on the table, complete blue sky. Um, and I just, you know, games, I was playing a ton of games and was j just curious to people write this stuff. And this hypothesis started to form like, oh, well, you know, I have all this comedy experience and, you know, I've played games my whole life and maybe, maybe there's something there. And uh, one one small gig kind of led to another, and it, it snowballed over the course of a couple of years. And uh, yeah, here I am. I guess I guess I kind of backed into it a little bit. I'm, I'm a game writer, but that's not not what I set out to do for sure. Very cool. So when you were coming out of college, 
At, at what point did you know you wanted to be a writer in general? Like, was there a pivotal moment where that clicked for you? Yeah, I think it was. Um, I mean, I knew I wanted to write comedy just as a as a thing to do. Probably at, towards the end of high school, um, I had a you know created a parody newspaper with with a bunch of my friends in high school and like passed it out uh, around the halls and stuff like that. Um, and had always been writing jokes, like interested in the craft of comedy, like that had always been a thing. And then when I got to college, um, started as a writer at the, the humor publication there, and then kind of rose up the ranks and became an editor. And I think maybe my junior year, I had to declare a major and, um, I actually was really interested in, in archeology span anthropology. I, I thought, um, maritime archaeology was was really cool i thought it'd be kind of cool to just be one of those people who just like dives for shipwrecks um, and studies that um my my parents did not think it was as cool as i did uh <laughs> but i uh yeah i declared a communication major because partly because all the anthropology courses that i had had taken like counted towards the communication major and i was already um you know working a ton on the humor magazine so it all just kind of, it, it made sense. Like, okay, entertainment industry, like I'm interested in, in studying like cultures and maybe like commenting on culture and, um, you know, communication was, was the, the nexus of all of these, these different threads. So I think probably my junior year of college, it was like, okay, maybe, maybe this is what I'm going to do, you know, try to be a, a writer, be involved in the comedy side of entertainment somehow. Right on. Yeah, I, I do want to make our, our way into talking about games, but I mean the Onion. You mentioned the Onion. That's a yeah, that's a big deal. What was that experience like? What was what was your time there like? What did you take from that? Yeah, um, I really I, I say I like to say I grew up there. I, I really spent my twenties there. I, I got there um, a couple months out of college. You know, right after the summer, I graduated and uh, I left at around twenty eight, and um, it or, or maybe even longer. Hard to hard to remember, but yeah, it was um, it was a great it was a great experience. I, I learned a lot about the craft of writing. I learned how to uh, work together with people and kind of like professional comedy environments. Um, right. I, I of course had to follow the news and and developed a real like understanding of the the media landscape, uh, which was really in flux. Uh, over my time there. I mean, when I started, The Onion was a, a print newspaper. You could get it on a street corner. Um, and when I left, you know, we were, uh, you know, battling the Facebook algorithm. Um, so that's just such a seismic shift in the media landscape. So uh, I didn't start as a writer, actually. I started as an editorial intern. Um, so helping writers, yep. um, working on the production side. Um, but there was a, you, you were allowed, I guess, at the end of your internship to like, pitch some headlines and so i did that and then a little became a little bit more and you know over the years that i spent there i just kind of got ingrained in the the production process and the culture and all that and uh was right being asked to write more and more and more and getting more um printed you know in in the newspaper like stuff through the whole uh grinder of getting approved um, and then at a certain point, I was pretty much doing a full-time job of an editorial coordinator and of a staff writer um, simultaneously. And it just, it, it felt really natural. It made sense to jump over to the writing side. So at that point, 
um, became a staff writer. And then by the end of my time there, I was a contributing editor. So I was still doing a lot of the staff writer stuff, like pitching original ideas and writing stories and doing a lot of the um, idea generation stuff. But then I was also editing other writers' work um, and just punching it up and getting it ready for a publication. So that's sort of the whole, the, I could do an entire podcast just on my experience there, but that's like the high level. Right on. Well, maybe we'll do that someday. Sure. You mentioned production and this is me just curious, complete side tangent. Um, are you talking like you were doing page layout or were you like on the light table cutting stuff up or am I... <laughs> uh, not, not the latter. I mean, I was actually doing page layout. I was getting really? in there. Um, well, What's interesting, going back to the media landscape thing, is when it's a when it's a print newspaper, the actual placement of stories on the page means something. You know, like a top a top story is different than an inside story, um, and you know, above the fold versus below the fold. Like, you know, if you wanted to ship something in the mail, you can't have profanity above the fold. Like, there were all these really interesting um, considerations, and then editorially, we would make decisions um, because of that. You know, this is. We, we we called the mix like what's the mix of stories at an issue like does this have legs to be a top story is this more of an inside story and it it really had it was like a ballet of um you know the the tone that we wanted to hit uh mixing all these stories together so um yeah production wise i was i was doing some page layout but it was also just helping make sure the trains were running managing drafts um making sure you know the writers had what they needed and uh, doing a lot of the administrative stuff of keeping um, the onion writers room uh, going as, as it was. Yeah. That is a whole nother podcast, but I'm old yeah. enough that I actually did start on a light table with a user okay. and some wax and oh, oh beautiful. Yeah. I love to hear it. That's great. <laughs> That's great. That's uh, the old school, but yeah. no, let's, yeah. <laughs> so if you could reach back through time and give a piece of advice to young Dave before he started out, what would that piece of advice be? Yeah. Yeah. Um, the time machine. Uh, <laughs> I guess I would, I would say to, to have a more open mind about what a creative career might look like. Um, I, you know, as I mentioned before, I had this really straight progression coming out of high school. It was like the campus humor mag. And then these internships at comedy central, the daily show, a decade at the onion, um, you know, towards the end of my time there, I sold a pilot script to CBS Productions that that didn't get produced. But um, I, yeah, I had this idea that I was just going to, you know, I had I had put in my my time and I had proven myself, and I'm just going to go right from there into TV. Uh, and many of my colleagues did exactly that. They they left the Onion, they went straight into late night, and and a whole bunch came out to LA and did scripted stuff, and um, really had some incredible successes. Uh, but but when that momentum stalled, I was really lost. Actually, I didn't I didn't really know. Like I couldn't really figure out how to take that next step um, after the the news satire of the Onion. Um, but uh, as soon as I let that idea go uh, about what my career was quote unquote supposed to look like, um, it, it actually it got a lot more exciting. You know, more possibilities, meeting more people. Um, you know, having creative relationships and just more, just more fulfillment. So, um, yeah, I, if, if I can just go on a little tangent about that, sort of like my, my soapbox, like, I just think there's this older mindset of, 
in a way that's out of touch with being creative professional today. Like you go to school, you learn a trade, you look at the job listings, you get a job, you do that job every day from nine to five until you retire. Um, and right now we're in this like creative washing machine of gigs and technology shifts and industry upheavals. Um, and I think it's, it, it can feel sometimes that like, you know, if your life doesn't look like that straight line, um, you can feel inadequate somehow, like you didn't do it right or something like that. Um, and, and that was, that was tough. That was tough for me for a very long time. But so, yeah, what I tell, what I tell a young Dave is just be a little bit easier on himself. Um, and just have an open mind for, uh, the, you know, possibilities that, that might come. Um, cause you'd be surprised. There's some really great stuff that's going to happen that you couldn't have predicted. Nice. The yeah. transition into games, mm-hmm. what was that like for you? What was like some of the challenges you had to overcome or skills that transferred that made it easier? What what did that look like? Mm. Yeah, I um I wouldn't say it's something that I really planned ahead of time. I I followed threads and kind of felt my way in the dark for for what felt right and what made sense. Uh, I, I think probably coming from entertainment or a very like writer centric medium, uh, thinking, you know, games, games is so much about the player. I mean, we all work for the player and, and a corollary to that, the designer, like the designers are really in the driver's seat and, and the writers are, are reacting to that. So I think, you know, checking that ego at the door a little bit, um, and, being a lot more mindful of the the currents in a in a game studio and and what you need to make a game and and being careful not to um, take some of the habits that I had learned uh, at the Onion and at some of the other jobs that I had and um, you know put them bring bring that to to a game space um, and thankfully I, I've actually really been lucky to work with some really great designers who who have been extremely generous in. Uh, t- you know, teaching me how they do their work and um, really helping me understand how writing can elevate a-, a project while not getting in the way. So, um, yeah, that was an important skill to learn. Um, I think just playing a lot more games than I used to or playing games differently. I think I, I do it now differently than I used to, a lot more critically. Um now, now understanding like the process of, of making a game and all of the ups and downs and stuff like that, you know, you can just, you can sometimes read between the lines and, and have just so much respect for the people who have, who have done it. You know, if you encounter something in the game, it's like, oh man, that must've, I, <laughs> I don't even want to think about what it took to get that, you know, that working yeah. stuff like that. So, yeah. yeah. I mean, we say it over and we hear it over and over again, how hard it is to get into the industry, especially now. I guess, in your opinion, why is that? What makes it so hard? Well, are you talking about narrative or just anybody who's trying to get into? Uh, I mean, we're we're talking narrative today, but I mean, you could apply it to the the games industry yeah. as a whole. <laughs> yeah, I, I I guess before I answer that, I think I actually have like a different, maybe even a hot take about this, which is like coming from a more like entertainment industry, Hollywood background, I actually found the game industry to be more approachable and actually easier to, to navigate. Um, there's no, 
there's no like middle layer of agents and managers. There's it's more spread out geographically. So there's just there's more options than just the two cities like, you know, New York and LA for, from speaking from an American point of view. And then with remote work, um, you know, there's more options there. I mean, I did some work for a Belgian studio um, a couple of years ago, and there's no way that I would ever get staffed like on a Belgian TV show. That would be like an alternate universe. So um, I, I know, I know it's really difficult. And especially now, you know, 2023 was this massive layoff year. And I guess I should say like, not to bury the lead, like I just got laid off. Um, my, my studio, uh, Hackjack Studios, uh, closed down earlier this month. So I am very much a part of the, um, the, the 2023-ing of the games industry. Uh, but yeah, I think, um, what, what can we do to, to make it easier? Um, I guess I'm probably most qualified to speak about narrative, um, because I don't, I don't know exactly the the difficulties that other disciplines would face. But um, one thing I've noticed in talking to a lot of studios is that sometimes there can be this uh, thought of like narrative is story, and if we don't have um, characters uh, either speaking in text that you read or in voiceover that you hear, um, we don't need writers, we don't need narrative or something like that. And um, I think if there was a shift. Of, of understanding of of like where people who understand storytelling can fit into the um, development pipeline. Um, not saying that there would suddenly be like an explosion of jobs, but you know, there's. I, I've sometimes been I've I've done contract work that is really really narrow in scope, and I think that if studios were able to see the need and the value, like the return on investment in getting um, people, you know, writers or narrative designers or people with that kind of background in earlier in production and longer in production, um, I think there may be some more opportunity for for people with our skill set to contribute meaningfully. That makes sense. Yeah. It's nice to hear. I've heard other uh, entertainment writers, novelists say that the gaming industry actually as a writer is easier than others. So it's nice to hear you say that as well. Like, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's hard to say like when so many people are struggling to come in and be like, ah, no, it's easy. But um, yeah, in other industries and, and particularly where I came from, um, they have their own sets of challenges um, that, that make it difficult for someone just starting out to uh, get a foothold there. So um, I've, I've found the games industry to be um, a, a really interesting place with with lots of opportunities and um room room to be creative to kind of write your own ticket in a way uh and uh work together with people who might be in a hiring position to to figure out ways that you can be involved rather than just sort of like waiting for that post to to you know the perfect post to just descend from heaven and <laughs> uh allow you to apply to it I, and I found that there's there's a lot of really nice, really good people in the industry. Like you hear oh, yeah. horror stories, but I've I've met nothing but nice people so far. Same, yeah, similar experience. I think with any you know critical mass of a certain number of humans, like you know you're going to get people of, of all types and people who you you know connect with and don't connect with as well. But um, yeah, I, I guess I've had some some really great luck too, um, just cool. working with very. Kind, generous, open, level-headed, um, brilliant folks, and uh, 
Hope it continues. Hope it continues. Yeah, we could we could check in in five years and see if we've had any horror stories. Six months. We'll do six check months. in six months. Sounds good. All right. Okay, so here's a tough one, um, but I like to ask it because often it has the best lesson that we can pass along, and that is, yeah, what is the greatest failure? Or sometimes we don't like to use the word failure, but mishap, misstep along the way, and what did you learn from it? Yeah, yeah, this is this is good. Um, yeah, I would say that I was um, when I was working full time, and you know, not to go back to the onion constantly, but that was really you know, where I spent most of my career. Yeah, yeah. Um, I was kind of a hermit, you know, outside of that. I, I would um, just go into work and that was my life. That was my social network. That was my creative outlet. I was just in this bubble. Um, so not much original work, not much uh, relationship building. Um, I didn't even really think of myself in an industry. It was like a whole, it was just a universe unto itself. And um, yeah, when after putting your entire heart and soul into something like that, when the, the situation changes, like, you know, it's kind of a complicated story. They like the, the organization moved to a different city and I became remote and, you know, there, there's a whole bunch of stuff there, but, uh, yeah, when that all went away, I was just, I was really lost and I really did have to, uh, build, build up from scratch. Um, so I think what I would learn from that experience, what I learned from that experience and, and what I continue in today is to to think of my day to day work as just one one piece of the pie. Um, for me, at least, like it's not it's not enough to just have like my uh, professional universe be one company and one set of colleagues. And uh, I've really worked at at developing more of like a kind of a constellation, I guess you could say, of of mini groups, smaller projects, you know, relationships uh, across the industry um, and and disciplines, and uh, it. Part part of it is is like a hedge against um, the kind of upheaval upheaval that we've seen. Um, yeah. You know, when this when this layoff happened um, a couple of weeks ago, uh, the amount uh, there's so much support. Like so many people came out of the woodwork. Um, I really was able to just hit the ground running, and uh, you know, I had a, a freelance work at the time. Was able to to do some more work on that, um, or you know, continue working on that. And, uh, I think that is the lesson, which is to, instead of putting all your eggs in one basket and hoping for the job, the one job that's going to sustain you and provide everything, um, from like salary and social and growth and development is to, is to really look for those things, um, in different places. Uh, and the benefit is that, you get to have a lot more fun experiences with a lot more fun people. Um, and then also when one of those, you know, when one of those table legs suddenly falls away, you still have the support of, of the others. That does kind of call back to that, what you said about the old mindset of you go into a career, you stay there until you retire that, that, you know, coal miner mindset that we <laughs> were taught as children. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah. And I think that it's not that that, is incorrect there probably was a time where where that advice was spot on but um yeah just n nowadays it, it feels like having to really start from scratch after um one thing goes away is is it's just a higher like mountain to climb than than if you had like a couple different base camps like all scattered around the mountain it and the world's changing man like that's the way it's got to be 
You mentioned yeah. side projects and freelance work to fall back on. I do contract uh, for, for Second Dinner and Marvel Snap. Very cool experience. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Cool. All righty. On the flip side from the dark and scary question, what's the best uh, compliment you've ever received on your work? Yeah, um, that is uh, another uh, another onion. Exactly, <laughs> this is turning into the corner of story and game and onion. Um, That's but great. yeah, yeah, that probably the best one. So I wrote this one story that uh, it kind of like spawned its own subculture in a way, uh, w- which was pretty incredible. It was I didn't write the headline, but I did write the story. It was um, Mr. Autumn Man walking down street with cup of coffee, wearing sweater over plaid collared shirt. And uh, it it it's kind of a strange story, but uh, the first draft I wrote was just really dead on arrival. Like it got torn apart by editors. It was um, not in good shape. And, you know, I did the typical kind of like writerly sulk, like, ah, you know, they just don't get it and all that stuff. Um, and uh, so the second draft, it was just like, you know what, forget it. I- I'm just going to swing for the fences and just like, just kind of let it, let it rip. Um, this was towards the end of my time there. So I, I felt the, I felt like I, I had earned enough uh, capital to to take a swing like that. And um, yeah, they pretty much printed it with like zero changes and um it's it kind of it gets quoted by people every year people have like made cocktails about it there's like halloween costumes about it i just googled like there's like a little like mini children's clothing collection like the little mr autumn man collection um people like dress up like like this guy and the actual photo was uh you know the the av club another publication um at the onion like their tv editor at the time um it was just uh, someone in the office who had the right look that were like, you know, can we borrow you for a little bit and and use your photo for this piece? And and like he's been interviewed by magazines like about this piece, um, and he has his own relationship to the story. So um, I think that is the biggest compliment I've ever received that that something I wrote just sort of like took on a life of its own. And um, you know, aside from me, like there was no byline, so nobody knows that I wrote it. They do now. That's incredible. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the whole body double though at at Onion. Were you a body double for a photo of some sort? I was, yeah. For for yeah, for um, uh, the Obama years, I was the the Barack Obama body double. Um, yeah, that's weird. I know <laughs> those words coming out of my mouth um, is weird, especially if you look at me. But uh, yeah, we, you know, with with the appropriate photoshopping. Um, it, they, it was, it was usually like a, a head swap and like fully clothed. But, uh, if you, if you want to see, there was one about, there was like a piece about him wearing, um, like, um, a mocap sensor suit to like oh, yeah. fully, fully recreate the presidency. So yeah, if you want to see some like classic, uh, mid twenties, Dave flab, uh, go, go Google that, um, that piece. Oh, it'll be in the show notes. Oh, good, good, good. Yeah. Before we move on to digging into some craft stuff, I like to ask, what is it that fuels your creative fire? What drives you to create things? Well, my brain does it automatically. I think probably like many, many writers or many creative people, it's not it's not something you choose to do, it's something that happens and and you either choose to listen to it and, you know, get those ideas down and create something with them or not. 
yeah, you know, I'll 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 be singing along to a song, you know, in the car on on the radio, and and midway through it, I'll realize that I'm just improvising parody lyrics like on the spot. It's like I didn't ask to do this. Like this is just <laughs> this is just my brain. Like I'm so glad I'm the only one in this car right now. But um, yeah, I guess maybe in some way I, I am trying to get back to like an idealized earlier time in my life. You know, I had mentioned the the thing in high school that I had this parody newspaper uh with with my friends and it really was like a truly like beautiful happy time just staying up all night uh writing this um this newspaper in someone's room so yeah i think all, all I, I guess all i want to do is is just be surrounded by a bunch of idiots like goofing off and and yeah. maybe maybe get paid for it yeah that's the dream that's the dream if those creative fires run low, do you have like non-creative hobbies that you turn to to kind of refill, refuel? Mm. Uh, yeah, I, I do. I do enjoy woodworking. Uh, I haven't been able to do it as much as as I did in the past. This apartment life, and I have a, um, you know, a toddler. Um, but yeah, I I just like uh, just making making furniture. I think. I think I wrote in a bio at some point, you know, like the retirement plan is to just like have a barn and, and make like a tricked out barn and, and make furniture with, with like reclaimed, like local hardwood. I think that would be the coolest thing in the world. Very cool. Yeah. All right. Let's dig into some, some writing craft here for a bit. Yeah. When you're writing something, when you're building something, how much of yourself do you put into it? How much Dave is in a game or a, book or an article or it depends it depends totally on the context i think with um earlier stuff a lot uh sometimes the the things that we were working on were almost like note by note retellings of what was going on in our lives at the time like you know a fun way to read the onion is just to think about like what if these pieces were actually talking about like what's going on in the lives of the people who are writing them. Certainly during my era, that was like a decent way to to read it. But um, I think there's always going to be some of that weirdness in there. Um, I think I've learned over over the years to uh, be more be more mindful of the project and and be more sparing with how much of myself goes into it. Um, being open for places where it makes sense but not forcing it in places where it doesn't make sense and to to listen more to like the the characters and the tone you know when i start a new project i really um really kind of grill the people in charge of like what is the tone you know like what are the refs what do we want this to sound like usually a collaboration works best when people have a strong idea of what that is uh and it's it's hard it's hard not everybody has the language to describe what they're looking for. So I know that's a little bit of a tangent, but I would say, yeah, there's always going to be a piece of me and that scales up or down depending on the context. And that's a good thing, right? Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. I mean, what about you? Not not to turn it back on you, but how, how would you say that works for you? Anytime I have the opportunity to create something that is purely creative, there's a lot of me in it. Um, most of my work is corporate. I run a marketing company. So most of my writing okay. is branding videos or copy or Facebook ads, but no, I, any chance it's, um, Joshua Rubin once said to me, anytime you have a chance to set up, step up and create something is mm-hmm. an opportunity to put something out there and make art mm-hmm. regardless of what it is. So 
I always find a way to try and sneak some part of me in there. Like, Love that. Whether yeah. it's my sardonic sense of humor or a dirty little wink on the side, something. <laughs> Love that. Yeah, yeah. O- always looking for places to do that. That's, that's the way to be. Yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. All right, so comedy. Comedy is notoriously hard to write. Do you have any tips for people who are slamming their head into that particular wall? It's it's hard to give, you know, like actual advice, like do A, do B, do C. Um, it's a very big question. I guess I'll maybe sidestep it a little bit and just talk about like a hurdle I was facing and how I overcame it. Basically, like I was thinking a lot about what I wanted to write and I wasn't writing it. And this, and my process was uh, pen and paper. So I would sit there with, with a notebook and think about what I wanted to write and not write anything down until internally I had been like, okay, that's good enough to, to write down. And I developed a way of doing it where it was just stream of consciousness. Like I actually wasn't, I wasn't no, no format, no, no, like, you know, okay, I am going to write like 10 ideas for this premise or something like that. No, it was truly like I'm sitting in a coffee shop and I'm looking at my foot and I write shoe and I do that over and over and over again for hours. And then just somehow it was almost like I needed to to like pack my my internal sensor off like on a vacation it's like okay all expenses paid trip to hawaii like go hang out there for a while i am just gonna like just let brain like drip onto page and then stuff just start started forming um and 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 i don't know if that's like subconscious or if i had um you know teed it up somehow by like immersing myself in the format of whatever i was writing you know at the time it was probably on your headlines and it was just quantity. It was just quantity and it was pages and pages of crap, like stuff that doesn't even make sense. And then maybe every once in a while, like, oh, okay, that's that's an interesting idea. Or like, that's something that I want to come back to later. And um, then kind of going back through and curating the mess and, and just like sifting through the puddles and, you know, grabbing a little bit here and a little bit there. It was It was the quantity that I think helped me get over that hurdle of of inhibition and that's and that's still my method today it's always quantity um and whittling down i was gonna ask is that still a practice that you you do daily kind of thing absolutely whenever whenever i'm working on something i mean i always i always try to over pitch when i uh, am like working on if it's an idea based thing if it's more of like a like a summary of something like you're not going to write like three you know three plot summaries for the game but, you know, let's say I character premises, I'll, I'll still like pitch more character premises than I need or th- that I was asked for. But, but even that list that I pitched started as a much bigger list. So I'll have like many more ideas than, than actually make it to the already bigger than necessary list. And I, I love the back and forth of like, getting getting people's reactions like oh this is working this isn't working if you took this and maybe changed it to that it could work that way so yeah my process is still quantity and then calling down yep nice yeah um and then one other thing that that i'd add actually is that i think what really helped me was having an audience uh to to get feedback from and it's 
it's not, I don't think it's necessary to have like, you know, you don't need to go up on stage and, and perform like you don't need to be a professional performer. And it's not, you know, you don't need to have the entire world as your audience, but somewhere in between the, you know, the friend who laughs at everything and people who like have a more like refined sense of it and know what, what really resonates for them, what makes them laugh. I mean, if you make someone laugh who doesn't want to laugh, that's all the data you need. Yeah. Done. Print it, you know? Moving into games with humor. Mm-hmm. How do you make a character funny? How do you make a game funny? How do you instill that humor into a game? Yeah. I wish I had the answer. We're we're <laughs> we're getting to the limits of my expertise here. But yeah, in in I guess how I approach it is a, a real big part is understanding the um the context of how the player will experience a moment. You know what kind of mindset they'll be in. What did they? What did they just do? Where do they come from? What's their desire at the moment versus their avatar's desire at the moment? You know, a lot of stuff that that we've talked about and and gone through and learned in the you know master narrative department master class. But yeah, always start from design and then and then moving on to to joke. I think if you come in trying to be like, okay, this is something funny, I'm gonna now make the game work around it. That that I would say is the wrong approach. Um, gotcha. Looking at what the game wants to do to create the best player experience, and then seeing where you know can humor elevate that? Can humor subvert uh, player expectations? Um, it's it's almost like the game tells you um, rather than than you tell the game. You know, an example from the the last project I work on, Pigeon Simulator. I wrote a devlog post about this, but we had. We had a character, uh, an NPC that you would go on the roof uh, that was like placed on a roof, and they would they would give you a quest, and you'd go you'd go talk to them. But I was playing around with spawning objects, so it's like after you talk to this character, you know, can they give you something? And the I think the typical thing would be like, yes, if you you talk to a character, but then you keep talking to them, maybe they can give you something that's useful, and that's that's how you would do it classically in a game. And I thought, okay, well, what would be something not useful? You know, you're on a roof and you're talking to a pigeon. The game I was working on is Pigeon Simulator. Yeah. Uh, you're, you're talking to a pigeon. How about they give you a basketball? There's no basketball hoops around. Why would a pigeon give you? Where would a pigeon even carry a basketball? So I did that. And I was like, okay, that's kind of funny. And then I was like, could I break the engine by spawning 3,500 basketballs on this roof? And so I did. I mean, it, it it didn't. It ended up. They ended up spawning. Like the the game probably froze for 15, 20 seconds or something like that. But that was. It was an interesting thread that I was, that, that I was following there. So then I was like, okay, well, what is the funniest number of basketballs to spawn on a roof far away from any sort of basketball hoop? Um, and that involves some, some trial and error or something like that. So it's not. I mean, this is not like. The best joke in the world, but I think it's an example of like I have a moment, uh, I have a character, I have the ability in the the scripting language that I'm working in to pick a prop from the the asset list that that art the art team maintains. Um, what can I do with that? And and thinking about you know the the player character is up on this roof, they're getting a quest. There, what what's their mindset? What are they going to be thinking about? You kind of weird and silly and stupid to just be like here's 35 basketballs like go nuts 
So that's just that's an example of like one one way that I did it in the game. But yeah, start from design, think about the context, always always player first. But the traditional rules of comedy like subvert the expected and mm-hmm. and all those they still apply, right? Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, with games the difference is player agency. So, yes, subvert the expected, but not if it requires the player to be doing something that they might not want to do. You know, if it's like we we devoted all these development resources and it's like we are going to make you like you must now watch this stupid basketball's joke. That doesn't work. But if it's like it's here and if you want to find it, great. It's a little bonus for people who who seek it out. It's it's so much fun in a game where you're poking around and you're doing something and then the game reacts and it's like, "Oh yeah, the game knew you were going to do that." Like those are so fun when those moments can happen. So as as writers and designers, can we you know, without putting too much of a burden on other teams and, you know, all those production considerations, can we can we create those moments? And uh, that's I think that's the mindset that I always try to have. Very cool. Yeah. So here's a tough one. Can comedy be serious? I think comedy could be anything. Um, what, what do you mean by serious? Can we use comedy, which is really just tragedy with a happy ending, can we use it to say something important or to affect social change or to, like, can it yeah. be, can it address something that matters as opposed to just be frivolous? Mm. I think, so it's a complicated question. I think that it has the ability to, but as a creator, if you set out intentionally to use it as a tool, it's tricky. It's, I think you run into some trouble there and, you know, you always want to be careful about like Trojan horsing a message, mm-hmm. you know, like if somebody just wants Remember, you know, you're you're dealing with a captive audience. You know, sometimes you know people can't just, or or wouldn't want to just like get up and leave. They've invested time in the game, something like that. If you're if you if you kind of like lead them along this path and oh we're having fun and you know et cetera et cetera and then it's just like now you listen sit down like you're not going anywhere. I'm gonna I'm gonna tell you something you need to know. I think that's a poor use of it, and it's it's a it's a tough question because there's so much. I think there's there's a lot of things that need to be said, you know, like there's there's problems in the world and and we, you know, we we're in an attention economy and people's attentions are constantly diverted and it wouldn't it be better if if people were actually focused on things that matter than than frivolous issues. Like I I get all of that, but I think if in the course of doing humor it changes the way people think that's great. But if you set out from the beginning, like I am going to use this as a tool to change your mind, that becomes a little bit tricky to have the same sort of like effect that comedy might have in another context. That makes sense. Yeah. That does kind of lead us towards the question that kind of lives at the heart of the podcast here is, is this idea of in where games and stories meet and performance arts and literary arts and all these things, there's kind of a shared space, a magical sacred circle where all of these creators and people and gamers and actors can all come together. And there's something that binds all these people. In your opinion, what is that common thread? What pulls that all together? I guess I compare it to to other media where, 
you're you're a little bit like on the outside looking into the like you know the the, the party that's going on inside the house and in games you're invited and, and i think there's something really special and different about that and you know like you can if you want to you can just go upstairs and you know hang out in in a room and watch tv you know in this hypothetical like house metaphor but that's what's so great about games it's it's this entire world just catered to you and your character and other people can also have that reality like to like you know you could say like like well i'm i'm kratos and and someone else could be like oh that's weird because because like i'm kratos like i i've been playing kratos so for for multiple people to live the same experience in a world that's designed just for them is special and different and makes it just such an interesting creative medium to work in and that's what that's what like fires me up that that's what i like about it right on last serious question yeah why are stories important i for me they let me rent a different brain for a little bit and and when I put my real one back in, it's changed in a way that's better. That is maybe not even perceptible. They 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 change they change me, and and I like I, I like that experience. And yeah, I just I I think it's it's a way to live multiple lives in in a way that you you wouldn't get to otherwise, and and that you get to choose. You know, you have some agency over which which other lives you want to live, and and that's really cool. So, yeah, that's important to me. I, if, if you're saying why are stories important in general, um, let's do that too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, ha- I had some thoughts about that. I, I think stories are as important now, really, as they've always been. Like nothing has really changed. They've always been really important to humanity. To to get back on the soapbox a little bit, like I think it's. It's it's more important as a story consumer right now to to consume stories and information in general like very intentionally, and that that includes the the podcasts that you listener are currently plowing through at one point five speed um, while you're playing a game. But yeah, I think like with with the idea of like content, like you know now we just have this big monolith, this flattened you know bowl of mush that is content um, that yeah. we don't have to to think about really consuming. I think it's important, stories are important to consume it intentionally. So yeah, if that if that's something that, if that's the issue that I can get behind, I'm, I'm all for it. Let's dig into that for one second, because you and I are of a very similar mindset when it comes to that, I have a feeling. Okay. And with the importance of stories, the, the ability of stories to shape society, to affect evolution even, and the kind of stories that are being thrown into the content mush, as you say these days, by parties that are either nefarious or just not all that bright. What responsibility falls on storytellers and story creators, mm. considering the power that the stories that they're putting out has? Yeah. Well, there is a limit. I, I don't. I don't think. You know, nor nor should a storyteller be responsible for you know fighting city hall, as it were. But. I, I think all we really can do is just serve serve our readers, listeners, players the best that the best that we can. You know, give give them stories that are that are memorable, that that make them think, that maybe, um, and n- not even ones that you know 
it's a huge ask to be like, you know, you need to be fully present and immersed and like with me for the entire 40 hour story that I'm telling you in this game. You know, like that's a big ask. I think I'm a realist about that. But can we can we give moments that that make people, you know, maybe maybe think a little bit differently or maybe remember something um, outside of the the game when they're when they're confronted with the the fire hose of content slop that that seems to follow us wherever we go these days. So yeah, I would say like give ourselves a break. Uh, we we don't we don't need to to save the world, but you know doing doing the best we can at at creating stories that that people want to experience intentionally. That that's really all I could hope for. That's brilliant, man. Cool. Yeah. Thanks for asking the question. Yeah. I we'll we'll add it to the list of other podcasts. We have to do the the Onion History podcast and the the anti content podcast. Let's do that. No oh, yeah. I can go on and on. Yeah. Oh well, we both have background in media, so and Yeah. I was a small town reporter and then moved into magazines and journalism was my lifeblood. And to see what has happened, to see the betrayal of the public to yes. to the media, which was, you know, the watchdog, which was the, there to help the public. And now people are turning on the media and it's uh, yeah tough time to be an old journalistic dog. No, I hear you. I hear you. It's... I, I was I was shocked actually when I you know going back to communication in college when I learned about media literacy like as a concept that it's like well no like the newspaper is just the news like the newspaper tells you what happened and and learning about like framing that like oh no there's actually there's actually editors that like everything's true but they choose which stuff to tell you that should I was be like, taught in high schools how like, do people not know this and and how are you not how are you not consuming information mindful that this is going on and that's when i started reading multiple newspapers and even ones like outside the u.s because yeah. i i feel like i need to like triangulate a little bit like i i need to get some contrast to understand like what's really going on but yeah i agree with you it completely should be taught in high school at the very minimum, you know, like an assembly, like if they're going to tell you, like, you know, we had a, a police officer come in the night before Halloween to tell us, you know, like, don't spray shaving cream and don't, you know, don't wreck houses. Like, yeah, maybe have someone come in and tell us, like, don't believe everything that comes up in your feed verbatim or like maybe ask people, do you have a source? Like, what's the source on that thing you just told me is true? Yep. I, so many times someone has told me something and I'm just like, really? Like, where's the source? I'll be like, oh, let me pull it up. It's like something I've never heard of. And it's like, okay, like get me, get me something from a .edu URL and then we'll have the yep. conversation. Yep. Peer reviewed academic paper, please. Like, yeah, exactly. Not, not, you know, no one's obviously going to read the whole journal, but I just want to know, like, people who actually give a crap are making our reality, I guess you could say. Okay, let's move back into slightly less serious things. Yeah. We're almost yeah, done yeah. here. So, no, before we head out the door. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like to do what I call the quick fire questions, where I just throw some questions at you. It's top of mind, just quick answers. Great. Who's your favorite comedian? Uh, there's a lot of people. Yeah, there's a lot of people I like. I think you know, comedy writer. I'm I'm a big Jack Handy fan. 
I, I love, you know, the, all, all that. Um, stand up. Spent a lot of time growing up listening to Carlin. Big Carlin fan. Recently, oh, yeah. I've enjoyed a lot of, uh, I like a lot of Ron Funches' stuff. It was great. Uh, I heard a great special from uh, Emma Arnold. She's awesome. Um, yeah, I have a ton of respect for for the craft of, of people like Eric Andre and Nathan Fielder and, and people who are pushing the boundaries like that. But uh, yeah, I could go on and on. There's so much good comedy out there if you just know where to look. So another podcast. Yep. Add it to the list. We're up to three. <laughs> yep. What are you reading these days? Do you have a book on your nightstand? Yeah. Yeah. There's um, actually one about the game industry. Uh, it's called Extra Lives by uh, Tom Bissell. And uh, I finally got around to reading Naked Lunch by uh, William S. Burroughs, which is pretty incredible written, uh, to be written like that. So, yeah. Hmm. Uh, what was your top game of 2023? Uh, that's an easy answer. Power Wash Simulator. Uh, I <laughs> I have a problem. Um, I played a lot of Power Wash Simulator. <laughs> so, yeah. Have you beat it? Did you finish it? I did. I did nice. just recent, just very recently. Yeah, I finished career mode. I got that game for my son just so that he'd get addicted, and then I made him wash my car. <laughs> that's that's putting video games uh, to work for you. I like it. Yep. Gamification parenting. Yes, like it. All right, last one. This one might be a little tougher. Yeah. Where do you want to see Dave in five years? That's an easy answer for me. Um, I I have a. You know, I have a pretty strong desire. I, I want to be in a position where I can hire funny people to work in games. I there's just so many great uh, mind, you know, comedic minds out there that I just don't think games are on their radar. And uh, I first love to change their minds, and then I love to be able to pay them for it. So, yeah, just getting into that position where where I can you know welcome some more of these awesome talented folks in and yeah, let's make some funny games together. Brilliant. All right, man. Yeah. Um, before we head out, just like to give you a little space. Is there anything you want to promote or talk about or boost? Sure. Yeah. One thing it's, I guess it's still kind of relevant. Maybe uh, the, the last uh, game jam I did with a, a bunch of people, current and, and former uh, onion folks, but uh, it's a game, little game called the visionary. And uh, it's a rhythm game where you, you're a boss running a boardroom meeting and you have to steal your, employees ideas um, and repeat them verbatim uh, so just just go to itch.io search for it the visionary and uh, my username is uh, if that helps uh, serious hats only with with underscores uh, between the words and uh, yeah it was a, it was a fun one to put together it, it, was, it was a fun group to work with and very silly very silly concept I lived that game okay there you go <laughs> there'll be links in the bio there will be great. links to that in the bio great 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 yeah and finally, if people want to find you online, where should they look for you? Uh, LinkedIn's a good spot. And then DaveCornfeld.com is my website. You can go check it out. Fantastic. Well, Dave, this has been fun, man. Thank you. Absolutely. No, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. And uh, yeah, keep gaming. Another evening draws to a close. And well, you know the drill. Before we turn in for the night, I, I just want to say thank you to Dave for sitting down and swapping stories around the table. And hey, thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review, tell your friends, and hey, hit that plane hopping subscribe button. Take care in your journey, Swanderer. I hope to see you again next week, here at the corner of Story and Game.